2 Samuel 18 at verse 28. And Ahimeaz called and said unto the king, All is well. And he bowed himself before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be Jehovah thy God, who hath delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, even me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I know not, I knew not what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. And he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Tidings for my lord the king, for Jehovah hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. And the king said unto the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, The enemies of my lord the king and all that rise up against thee to do thee hurt be as that young man is. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Well, we have been following David for some time, as most of you know, following in particular, most recently, his life after his wickedness, after his terrible sin with Bathsheba, and in a coordinated sin, trying to hide it, his sin with Bathsheba, he instituted measures that resulted in the death of her husband in battle, Uriah the Hittite. And since that time, because of God sending Nathan to David to reprove him, David confessed his sin, but nonetheless, from Nathan's lips, God's words were pronounced against David that the sword would not depart from his house because of what he had done. He was going to be chastened. The Lord forgave him his sin, but he was going to be nonetheless chastened. And from that point on, we see all the development of this, the chastening hand of God in the life of David. And it struck me that these matters, ever since God's chastening hand came down upon David, that David was in, if we can refer to Pilgrim's Progress, it seems as though David has been making his way through something of a slew of despond. One thing after another, God's chastening hand falling upon him again and again. And yet David keeps on. But in this passage that we just read, in his reaction to the announcement, to the declaration, to the news that Absalom, his son, was dead. It's as though David here almost drowned in that slew of despond, almost drowned in his own tears. 
And what are we to say to this? What is our response to be? We have grown up, many of us, not me particularly in the church, but partially at any rate, but we've grown up and, and most people in churches look upon King David as he indeed is a type of Jesus Christ, as he indeed is or was a man after God's own heart, and yet we have, we have been guilty of, uh, I think the word's pronounced, hagiography. We have made an idol of some sort of David. We have set him up as more than he actually was. He was a man like us. And he sinned like us. And he's being chastened and been chastened like us. He's a man. And here, what are we to say to this? Well, one thing we can say is that we hope we never find ourselves in this position. We pray and trust that we would never. One writer, one commentator of a few centuries ago stated very plainly, David is to be blamed. That's concise, isn't it? David here is to be blamed for this behavior, for this response, for this weeping and wailing and grieving in front of all his people and before God weeping and wailing for showing, in doing so, for showing so great a fondness for a graceless son. Now I want you to understand throughout this message that I'm not pretending that to do otherwise would have been easy. I'm not pretending that to do otherwise would be easy for any of us. But nonetheless, we have to look at the truth we have to ask ourselves, where are these people that we love in the flesh? Where are they in comparison with God? Where are they in comparison with the one who was hanged on a cross and poured out his blood in order that we might be saved? And so this David is to be blamed for showing so great a fondness for a graceless son. He is loving a hater of God. Also, he's to be blamed for quarreling with divine providence and divine justice. Several weeks ago, we were looking particularly at the providence of God in the life of David. And here we find this man after God's own heart, we are told by God himself yet quarreling with God's providence, quarreling with the divine justice in his wailing and raving and weeping. And was he not in doing these things murmuring against God? He indeed was murmuring against God. He was complaining. He was grumbling against the providence of God. He was complaining about God's dealings with him and with his son Absalom. David is to be blamed for opposing the justice of the nation. He is the king anointed by God through the hand of Samuel. 
He is God's appointed and anointed king to do justice and righteousness over God's people. And here he's opposing the justice of the nation even. The king himself opposing national justice? Grumbling, complaining, murmuring against God as he does so. He is supposed to support justice, and in particular, the justice of God. And here he is crying about it. What are we to think of that? Not very much. He is indeed to be blamed. And then also for despising, in doing so, for despising the mercy of God in his deliverance from the assault of his son. God used many men in order to deliver him. God employed even the forest of Ephraim to deliver David, to deliver his life, to be merciful and hear in David's response and behavior because simply of the news of the death of Absalom. He's behaving like this. It's interesting that we didn't see him behaving like this over the death of that child, that illegitimate child that he and Bathsheba had. We don't see him. In fact, his servants can't believe that he's not behaving that way. And well, if he had behaved that way as he did toward the death of that child, rather than this way that he behaved regarding the death of Absalom, and even the death of Amnon, who was murdered by Absalom. We don't see any cries like this. We don't see any murmuring, any complaining. In fact, he doesn't seem really to care. We don't see any representation of that in his behavior or any words. And yet here, it becomes very clear how much Absalom meant to him. And if we can put it in our own parlance, he loses it, totally loses it, and he is to be blamed for despising the mercy of this deliverance orchestrated by the living God himself. For indulging also he is to be blamed, for indulging a strong passion and speaking unadvisedly with his lips. He should just shut his mouth. He should put his hand on his mouth rather than utter these things. He should crawl into a hole rather than being found weeping over this renegade, over this rebel, over this desired uh, patricide, regicide, this would-be murderer who was already a murderer, already a fratricide regarding Amnon. And uh, because of all these things, because of these behaviors for which he is to undoubtedly be blamed. He also added to that that he shamed all his troops. All his troops who had jeopardized their lives and very likely jeopardizing, even surrendering. We're not told if there were any casualties among his men. But undoubtedly, if they were spared by the grace of God, 
Many of them had jeopardized their lives and what? The lives of their sons. And David doesn't seem to care, not one iota, about the lives of his own men that were ready to lay down their lives for him, ready to lay down the lives of their sons. And he shames these men. Coming back, they should be enjoying a victory parade. Instead, they're ashamed and they skulk off shamefully, heading for their own residences just to hide as though they had been beaten, as though they had fled from before the enemy. He shamed them by his behavior. David is much to be blamed for these things. Paul even tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.10, and well had it been if David had been able to hear these words. Of course, he must have known these truths that Paul utters to the Corinthians. Neither murmur ye, as some of them murmured. Paul tells us David was murmuring loudly and before all that were around him. All that were perhaps expecting and waiting for a, a big congratulations over their victory. He shames them instead. Neither, Paul says also in that same passage, neither let us make trial of the Lord. I know that can be translated tempt the Lord. And David is tempting the Lord when he behaves like this, but I was looking at my own copy of God's word where it's translated, let a, neither let us make trial of the Lord. And it made me think, of David making trial of God and behaving like this. In other words, bringing God before the bar of justice, complaining of what he had allowed to happen to Absalom, complaining, even though God had promised that the sword would not depart from his house. Even though he likely knew through those that were alongside of him for these many days and weeks and months, perhaps, that God had purposed to slay Absalom, as we read, that he turned the counsel of Ahithophel because he was minded to slay the young man. And who asked for God, who asked God to turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness, but God himself, or David himself. And I would add these words from 1 Corinthians 10 also that I don't think we can ever read or meditate upon too often. Let him that thinketh he stand take heed. Do you think that you might do better than David? I trust that you would. But nonetheless, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed. We would need the upholding grace of God. We would need the strengthening of our faith. David's faith and grace seems to have collapsed under him at this occasion. And he behaves in this manner. He had good examples. He had good examples that he should have considered, perhaps, that he could have looked upon. One example is Job. You remember Job in the very beginning and how that Satan came before God and asked we can just put it this way, ask him to let him have his way with Job and, and 
God said, go ahead. I know he's a man that loves righteousness and eschews evil. And you won't be able to touch him because he's my man. That's what David should have been. He should have been God's man here. Instead of Absalom's weeping, inconsolable father. But we read in Job, after God had given Satan this permission, we read, and it fell on a day, this is 113 of Job, and it fell on a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, that there came a messenger unto Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away, yea, They have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans made three bands and fell upon the camels and have taken them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another. Again and again and again and again. Makes me think of that manufactured story about the the individual on vacation calling his neighbor to check on how his property was. And the neighbor said, well, everything's fine. Oh, yeah, he said the dog died. And the neighbor said, what happened to the dog? And he said, well, they they said it's probably smoke inhalation. Smoke inhalation? From what? Well, the garage caught on fire. The garage caught on fire? How did that happen? Well, they say it was probably sparks from the roof of the house. The house burned down. And that's a humorous story, but there's nothing humorous about this in Job. And the big difference is, the big difference is, that this man, even in this this manufactured story, this man's children weren't in the house. Job's children. He is told, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Oh boy, rolling, snowballing. My goodness. Here's here's, Here's where Job... I'd jump up and wail and moan and cry and murmur and complain. Not Job. God was right about him. He's faithful and righteous and eschews evil. Then Job arose and rent his robe and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. Jehovah gave and Jehovah hath taken away. Blessed be the name of Jehovah. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Exactly what David was doing. Charging God foolishly. Because his beloved son Absalom was dead. He charged God foolishly. This is unimaginable, isn't it? This that happened to Job. We cannot possibly put ourselves in the place of Job. And yet we must presume through the gift of faith given to every believer that God quickened his faith. God poured grace upon grace into his heart. 
Will he so quicken us in such a case? I trust and pray that he will. I trust and pray that he will. That our testimony before others won't be like David's testimony here in 2 Samuel 18. I think we believe that when we read about martyrs going to the stake, even singing, trying to preach until they cut their tongues out, and rejoicing that they are counted worthy to die for Christ, that God definitely gave them dying faith, dying grace. And we can pray for that for ourselves when that hour comes to meet us. Another example David should have looked at, closer in time probably than Job to himself, Aaron. You remember Aaron in that passage in Leviticus 10. And of course, many people know that because it's one of the grounds of the regulative principle. And they probably, sadly, may ignore things that are more important. What is told, what is told us here in 10, chapter 10 of Leviticus, and Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took each of them his censer and put fire thereon and laid incense thereon and offered strange fire before Jehovah, which he had not commanded them. And there came forth a fire from before Jehovah and devoured them, and they died before Jehovah for their sin, for this folly, for this taking something upon themselves that they were not commanded to do. They were priests of the Most High God. Can you imagine Aaron standing there? His two sons, he's probably so pleased with them that God has made them priests and they're going to the altar. And he may not even be aware of what they're doing, that they're offering strange fire. But all at once they're consumed by fire falling down upon them from heaven. What must Aaron have thought? What must he have felt? What was his reaction? What were his words? Moses said unto Aaron in the third verse, This is it that Jehovah spake, saying, I will be sanctified. I will be obeyed. I will be honored. I will be glorified. I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people will I be glorified. And what was Aaron's response? And Aaron held his peace. Aaron didn't utter a word. Aaron held his peace. That's what David's response should have been. And yet David failed miserably. Failed miserably. Aaron's trust was placed in the word of the living God. Moses reminds him of that. This is what Jehovah spake. And Aaron's trust is in the word of the living God. Little is said about this incident other than Nadab and Abihu burning, uh, offering strange fire. Little is said about this, but how relevant, how important, especially to our passage in Samuel. Aaron held his peace. Sad that David didn't imitate Aaron in this, that he didn't imitate Job in this. Rather, what was David's response? We've already read it. We can't imagine really what he was thinking, what was going through his mind. But it does seem, as we've suggested, that his 
that his entire faith fell through, fell to the ground. He was thinking of himself. He's the one that wrote Psalm 39, where we read, My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned, and spake I with my tongue. Surely that's what he did here. My heart was hot within me when I heard that news about my son, Absalom, my son. And while I was musing on that, the fire burned. It's hard to imagine that he wasn't angry with God. Well, you don't read that, but it's hard to imagine. And here, the fire burned, he says in Psalm 39, speaking generally, then spake I with my tongue. His heart was hot, the fire burned, and then he spake, Absalom, my son, Absalom, would I have died for thee? David, in spite of his grace, the graces given him by God, in spite of his skills also given to him by God and many gifts as a shepherd of the people. And yet, and as a sweet psalmist of Israel, as the commander-in-chief under Jehovah, and yet, and yet, he seems not able to shepherd his own heart. His son, we may Imagine, wrote in Proverbs, keep thy heart with all diligence. David failed to do that. He couldn't even shepherd his own heart. He was, who was appointed to shepherd the people of God. He couldn't shepherd his own heart. How sad. And he couldn't still. You remember how he stilled the evil spirit that had overtaken King Saul? with his heart, but he couldn't still his own spirit. He couldn't quiet his own spirit. But rather the fire raged hot in his bosom and he spoke unadvisedly with his lips. And he's supposed to command the people and to command his own children well. These things he failed. And it seems that, to use the language of today, that the biggest reason of his failure was that David, the mighty Goliath killer David, was a sentimental softy when it came to domestic matters, when it came to his children, especially when it came to Absalom, a sentimental Softy. We cannot but be struck, one wrote, with the absence of what had kept him so calm in the climax of his public trials. You remember all those occasions when he's fleeing from Saul, and it was his trust in God, his faith in the word of God given to him. God's promises upheld him in those trials. And yet where was that faith now? Where was any recognition of the hand of God in this? Where was any expression from the mouth of David to the submission of God's will? We see him even when he had opportunity to slay his enemy Saul, that he wouldn't do it because it was contrary to the will of God. Now here he collapses 
before God and before his people over this inordinate affection for Absalom. And he exercises inordinate grief. He appears to have abandoned himself without any struggle under this. Yes, great temptation, not denying that. But he appears to have abandoned himself. He wasn't the soldier. He wasn't the Robin Hood in the cave of Adullam anymore. He was this sentimental softy, crying and weeping, disrespecting the God of heaven and earth. His uncontrolled vehemence confirms a former remark that in domestic matters the divine will was not regarded as his rule. In domestic matters the divine will was not regarded as his rule so much as in public undertakings. We find ourselves, I'm sure, often tempted to separate these things. Oh well, we don't have to behave that way in our home. Yes, we do. We don't have to behave that way with our... Yes, we do. As before God. As before Christ, our Savior. His own feelings were his chief guide. Not the will of God. His own feelings were his chief guide in domestic matters. In themselves, they, missed, they, they surely were pure and affectionate. And yet they were wrong. In this context, they were wrong. Because he was choosing Absalom over God. And it's wrong. He doesn't pray, teach me to do thy will, O God. Many times we read in the Psalms, Oh, how I love I thy law. Where was it here? He had not been accustomed in this department to place his feelings <coughs> under control of the divine will. That's what he needed to do. And to behave as Job, to behave as Aaron. He had not been accustomed to that in domestic matters. When these feelings were crushed, in his mind, these feelings were crushed. And yes, they were. And many of the commentators suggest, and, and most likely in truth, that David had intimation that Absalom did not go to heaven. He said of, of that child that God took from him, that child of adultery, that perhaps he would see him, that he couldn't come to him, but he would go to him. And it seems to intimate a hope, at least, that he would see that child in heaven. And perhaps he was crushed because there's no hope of seeing Absalom ever again. And that's warranted, is it not? Do we not have incredible concerns for our sons and daughters, for their spiritual welfare? And when we lose a kinsman according to the flesh, even though it may not be as close as a child, 
when we lose a kinsman according to the flesh and we have no good reason even when we might find ourselves grasping at straws we find no good reason to believe that they loved Christ we know something of how that feels how much more for this more intimate relationship between our sons and daughters how much more heartfelt that feeling not only of agony but of it's over I missed my chance to tell them about Christ now I'll never have that chance again I missed my chance to behave before them as I ought. I'll never have that chance again. We can understand that agony that was governing his emotion. But he also forgot the public welfare. He forgot his own people. He forgot his soldiers, those that have offered to die for him. And he says, rather would God, I had died for thee, Absalom. Did he not know better than that? Even as Paul, when he cried that he would give up his salvation for his kinsmen, I believe that has to be registered as hyperbole of sentiment. And surely David knew better than to think that he could die for Absalom. We don't know the, the context of that. And how he, what his mind and his heart was thinking. Would God Christ had died for my son? Would God Christ had died for my daughter? Needs to be our cry. And this wish expressed by David was not a wish to be justified. He could not lay down his life for Absalom. Not even in an earthly fashion. It was against the justice and the will of God. It had been well if David had remembered more of his own words. <coughs> psalm 131, the psalm of David. An ascent, a song of ascents. Jehovah, my heart is not haughty. It is right now. We can say back to David at Mahaniam. It is right now. It's quite haughty, David. Nor mine eyes lofty. I would suggest they are. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters. Oh, yes, you are. You're complaining against the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer of his people. You indeed are ex exercising yourself in great matters or in things too wonderful for me. We can't understand. Uh, many times we can't understand what God is doing except that he does all things well and he does things for his own glory in the exaltation of his son, our redeemer, Jesus Christ. Many times the details are hidden from us. I would say most times we don't understand. Why did you let my sister go without Christ? And so on. Too wonderful 
These things are too wonderful for us. These are things that we ought not to peer into. It's too much. And if David had realized that these things were really too wonderful for him, he would have kept his mouth shut. He would have controlled his spirit. Then he goes on and says, I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child. O Israel, hope in Jehovah. But he's not listening to these words himself. Everything is Absalom, Absalom, my son. Charles Spurgeon made some comments about this psalm, and I think it this points to some of that hagiography that I mentioned earlier. He says, it is both by David and of David, this psalm. He is the author and the subject of it. And many incidents of his life may be employed to illustrate it. Comparing all the psalms to gems, we would liken this to a pearl. How beautifully it will adorn the neck of patience. Well, that's, that's true and wonderful, Charles Spurgeon. But where was David's patience? You're talking about David, the man after God's own heart. Too bad it didn't adorn his neck, this patience. It is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. And though David wrote it, he doesn't seem to have learned it. It speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. Lowliness and humility. Where are they, David? They're here seen, Spurgeon continues, in connection with a sanctified heart. Not in Mahanium it wasn't sanctified. It was being sanctified, but it wasn't behaving in a sanctified fashion. A will subdued to the mind of God. Charles Spurgeon, did you not read the entirety of David's life? A will subdued to the mind of God. But here we see his own will screaming against God. Against God's will. And a hope looking to the Lord alone. But David is looking to his own desires. He's looking to his own emotions. He's looking only to Absalom. His darling son. He's got tunnel vision. That's all he sees. And he's to be blamed. Happy is the man who can without falsehood use these words as his own. Well had it been had these words supplanted David's Absalom, Absalom. My son Absalom, that ranting and raving. For he, Spurgeon says, wears about him the likeness of his Lord who said, I am meek and lowly in heart. David's not wearing that likeness of his Lord here. There's no meekness and lowliness of heart. Jesus always submitted to the will of his father. David was strongly opposing God's will in this. David was opposing it powerfully, loudly, mightily, fervently. Franz Dalich or Dalich makes remarks that are surprising as well. I would have thought that, that he was more to be trusted as a commentator than the preacher Spurgeon. But he says in general, David is the model of the state of mind which the 
poet expresses here in this psalm that we're looking at. He did not push himself forward, but suffered himself to be drawn forth out of seclusion. That's how he responded to God's anointing him to be the next king of Israel. And we, true, we already looked at that, how that he didn't take possession of these things violently with his own hand. But after Samuel has anointed him, Delitz goes on, he willingly and patiently traverses the long, thorny, circuitous way of deep abasement until he receives from God's hand that which God's promise had assured him, that of the throne, that of the, of the kingship, that of that position. That's all true. We already mentioned that. David abasing himself and humbling himself and following the will of God as he was pursued by Saul. The persecution by Saul lasted about 10 years in his kingship in Hebron, at first only incipient seven years and a half. He left it entirely to God to remove Saul and Ishbosheth. Why didn't you leave it to God to take care and remove Absalom instead of complaining about it and bringing God to your bar of justice? and doing injustice to God, and doing injustice to Israel. Where were you? Where were you? Where was that man after God's own heart? What became of him? David finishes this comment off. He says he left Jerusalem to Absalom. Yes, he did. Submission to God's guidance, resignation to his dispensations, contentment with that which was allotted to him are the distinguishing traits of his noble character. Wonderful, Franz Delich. But he didn't do that at Mahanium. He thought he stood, perhaps. Let him, let David, that thought he stood, be made aware that he can fall to. God's response to all these things. God's response, we've seen David's response, we've seen Aaron's response, we've seen Job's response, God's response. Somewhat anachronistic, I suppose, if we're considering our scriptures that way, but God's response through the pen of Paul in Colossians 3, 5, I believe, are these words, put to death, therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, inordinate affection, some translators have rendered it. The word is pathos, sympathy, empathy, apathy. It's neutral by itself, and hear this, and passion is neutral by itself. Here this was an evil passion in David's heart even as Paul uses it in writing Colossians, this passion he speaks of. Inordinate has to be put in front of that. Passion can be good or bad. Pathos can be good or bad. Affection can be good or bad. But his pathos, his passion was guided. David's, that is, was guided by emotionalism, sentimentalism. And Paul finishes that line, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry, David. That passion for Absalom is idolatry. Had he made an idol of Absalom? 
He wouldn't be the first. And he wasn't the last. To make an idol of a child. God has said through Jesus Christ in Matthew 10 that we must be willing to give up parents. We must be willing to give up children. We must be willing to give up husbands and wives. To belong to Christ is a privilege, William Hendrickson said, so inestimable that no other relationship can replace it. It is a duty so imperative that no other obligation is more binding than our love and our obligation to Christ and God in Christ. If the choice is between a parent of Christ, the parent's wish, no matter how ardent, should be rejected. If between a child or Christ, the child's wish, no matter how vehement, must be overridden. David should have overridden this passion. This must be done out of predominating love for Christ. Those who refuse this supreme loyalty to Jesus, Jesus said, are not worthy of him. David, in this moment of time in Mahanium, in his reaction, was not worthy of God. He was not worthy of that title, a man after God's own heart. He was not worthy of that title, shepherd of Israel. David fell on his face. If you were raised together, Paul continues a few verses down, seek the things that are above. Seek Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Seek not the things below, not the things of the earth, not the Absaloms, but seek Christ. Seek Jesus Christ. Put him in his rightful place in your heart. He is in the rightful place in your heart. Don't oppose it by other things. Don't set up any other idols. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, these things are hard for us. Thou knowest. Have mercy. And by thy gracious hand and by the gracious shepherding of our King Jesus Christ, may we be kept from these things. We ask through Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd stand for the benediction, I've taken it from a Revelation 7, 15 through the end, where Jesus Christ to John says, Therefore are they before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun strike upon them, nor any heat. For the lamb that is in the midst of the throne shall be their shepherd. And he shall guide them unto fountains of waters of life. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen.